Welcome to the June instalment of our 2022 Bridging the Gaps podcast series, produced by FASTA, the Foundation for the Economics of Sustainability, and the European Health Futures Forum. I'm Caroline White. And I'm Sean O'Conline. In this month's podcast, I spoke with Julian Carlier, who is a researcher at the Galway Mayo Institute of Technology in the west of Ireland. Julian is an ecologist, and in his doctorate, he focused on the ecological benefits of greenways, and in particular, how they act as corridors and connectors for both nature and humans. He is currently working on the HNV Farm for Bio project, which will identify, characterize, and map the national extent of high nature value farmland and forest areas. We'll go over to Sean's interview with Julian now. Well, Julian, you're very, very welcome to this podcast. We're delighted to have you. And maybe we might start by, if you could describe to us just how you got into this whole world of ecology and well, a little bit about your background. I know it's quite interesting with your continental connections and your Irish connections and so on. Sure. Uh, hi, thanks for having me on, Sean. And yeah, I suppose a little bit of background about myself, maybe. Well, my parents are of Walloon descent, so that's the, the, the southern region of Belgium, the administrative region, in particular in the Ardennes region, which is a very heavily forested region with a long history of you know forest management and uh, predominantly for energy and firewood. But um, anyway, a suitable settlement place for, for bellmakers, which is where my history is from. So, and I also lived in northern France as well in my childhood, which is again a similar region, you know, very heavily uh, forested. So. I've also had a fascination for woodlands, you know, forests, trees, and then particularly also for insects. You know, I've, I've got very early memories searching for bugs with my dad and ant wars and snails inside the house. My mum uh, given out to me for that. But uh, basically, I've carried this through, you know, to, all throughout my, my childhood and my, my teens as well. This interest, you know, especially where I spent most of my life in North Leitrim. I would have grown up on a hobby farm, but I would have spent my days, you know, lifting up rocks and looking underneath and finding little creepy crawlies and crawling through rushy drains and things like that. So I've always been very influenced by my landscape, you know, um, I suppose in, in North Leitrim, you know, framed by the, the mountains and the lakes and the rivers, the wider sort of hinterland and without even knowing it by definition, I guess, influenced by the what's called a high nature value farmland and forest landscape, you know, that term that describes this, this very setting. And I suppose then through secondary school, would have done all the science subjects, uh, again, particular interest in biology and art. Uh, I remember landscape ecology, probably being my most favorite biology subject <laughs> and then going, you know, pa- painting or drawing those landscapes in the art room. So, uh, yeah, it was very, very much a strong part of my life. Could you go a little bit deeper into landscape ecology and tell us, well, first of all, what, what is landscape ecology and why is it of interest to you? Sure. Well, I suppose landscape or, or ecology in general, there's two kind of areas, you know, you can look at a very focused area, so sort of uh, species focused orientated. Or you can bring it towards the whole other end of the spectrum, which is more landscape, you know, looking at habitats, broad ecosystems and sort of the interactions that occur between them. I would have developed this interest, I suppose, you know, like I said, in secondary school, but I've also in my um, university studies, I did a level eight uh, science degree and I would have done ecology as elective modules and there would have been a certain amount of landscape theory in them. one of the particular modules that would have interested me would have been GIS systems, which is really digital mapping systems, you know, spatial assessments and things like that. So, you know, we would have layered different, uh, how do you call them, different map layers, you know, geology. We would have incorporated uh, different habitat data sets, 
species locations and sort of you know looked at the whole interrelationship between you know what's occurring where and why and then you know even going further then you can start to look at you know environmental degradation and elucidating why you know these are occurring you know are these correlating with other landscape things that are happening within the landscape or um, you know different human effects or impacts and things like that you actually mentioned to us already about this notion of connectivity or mm. networking within the whole concepts of landscape ecology. Could you say a little bit more about that and particularly your work about uh, how you link that into greenway corridors and so on and its importance not just people tend to think of it uh, from a tourist point of view but from a, a nature point of view why are greenways so important in the context of landscape ecology sure sure no problem well parking the greenway thing just just for a second i suppose the whole uh, landscape connectivity part of um of my interest i suppose i developed back in 2012 i did a work placement in the in the nature directorate in the walloon region of belgium so i went back to my roots and uh, there I visited, I suppose, a whole range of nature reserves, you know, national parks and things like that. But uh, what struck me was their efforts to reconnect vast areas of fragmented landscapes. You know, Belgium, the continent, I guess, uh, especially to West Europe, is, is a very different, very different environmental uh, realities compared to what we have here in the northwest of Ireland. And what was striking is how they dealt, you know, with nature designations and the sort of the interface with private landowners, how they were assessing, you know, the spread of invasive species, diseases. But um, the biggest part of what they were trying to do, or at least what I experienced uh, in my placement, was how they were trying to reconnect vast areas of well, nature reserves and things like that. You know, through different funding schemes, through farmland and payment, paying farmers for, to manage their fields in a certain manner to try and relink those areas and, and going beyond Belgium, you know, way up into Holland and across Holland and, and Germany as well. So that was very interesting. But at the same time, bringing back the whole greenway notion, it was kind of two things that happened at one time. At the same time, I was developing an interest in greenways. Um, I joined a voluntary group in Leitrim. Again, that's how I met Sean. And we were promoting the conversion of an old disused railway uh, into what they call a multi-use trailer greenway. Now, at the time, the greenway movement in Ireland was just starting. You know, everyone was was basing themselves um, off the uh, what's it called, the newly opened um, the greenway in Mulrani. It was the success of successfully opened uh, greenway at the time. And information in Ireland, I suppose, at the time was very scant. You know, what, what was a greenway? Who, who uses a greenway? Uh, is it a cycle track, or you know, are they strictly on former railways, etc.? So. I went back to Belgium again on a mission to find out, uh, you know, some information about you know, the long established sort of network of greenways in Belgium. You know, it had been established for 20 or 30 years already at that stage. Um, and I would have met with the president of the European Greenways Association, who happened to be based in Belgium at the time and learned a huge amount. But it was also at that time that I realized that greenways, you know, can be so much more than just a human transit route, which is what we were very focused on at the time. You know, you can take into account the whole green infrastructure that comes typically with a greenway, especially in Belgium, where I saw it, you know, hedgerows, trees, grassy verges, drains, you know, stone walls, banks, uh, things like bridges, old old structures. And looking at it from the broader landscape perspective, it kind of became clear to me that these serve as hugely important ecological networks in Belgium. And they mightn't have even realised it. When you consider the, you know, the surrounding vast areas of cropland, um, you know, you could go for miles without seeing a bee or a frog in them. And yet within this tiny little greenway corridor, there was a lot happening, you know, and they were, they were interlinked between forests and, you know, other little nature reserves where you would, um, that they would intersect. So I brought that idea back home with me, having, you know, learned about what greenways are for humans, but also with this notion of greenways for, for much more. 
So I did a bit of research on it and I approached a potential supervisor that was Dr. James Moran at IT Sligo, who specialised in agroecology. And together we put together a, a PhD research, uh, like a funding application, which was approved. And this was in collaboration with the, the Greenway Voluntary Group and many landowners obviously who allowed access during the period of research. Do you want me to talk maybe a little bit about this, this research, Sean? Would that be interesting? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And particularly what, what came out of it. I know you're talking sure. about a very special place, but you might put that <laughs> also in the context of the Greenway movement, if you like, in Ireland. You know, of course. Are, are, are they similar or are they dissimilar? And how are we doing from the way you've described it? Like, yeah. Uh, okay. Yeah. Well, for the project itself, the way we kind of framed it, we looked at the whole notion and the, the definition of, first of all, what are ecological corridors? So setting the context, you know, corridors and networks, so multiple corridors forming a network. Why you need them or why would you protect one or why would you develop a, an ecological corridor network? How they work, you know, the different widths, what are they composed of at the micro level, you know, I'm looking at their composition in terms of maybe hedgerows or grass like grassy verges, things like that. And then bringing it back to the macro sort of landscape level, you know, looking at valleys as corridors or, or rivers as corridors, mountain ranges even, you know, even beyond that. And then within that concept or that context, trying to fit the concept of a greenway. So if you picture the greenway as a spine, as a, a human development, but picture it as a spine, like a, a backbone upon which then this connectivity can be maintained or you can enhance it. So we have connectivity for humans and you've got connectivity for species, or at least you try and maintain that connectivity that exists for species. So just in the same way you can have you know loops from a greenway and this is this is very desirable from a human perspective of a, of a greenway you have loops into towns or you know other points of interest for humans the very same thing can happen in terms of ecology so you can have hedgerows or tree lines or drains rivers you know all interconnecting uh, within the central green corridor and into the landscape into the wider landscape the sensitive bit or the sort of the crucial bit is just making sure that the current infrastructure thinking about that this is a former abandoned railway and most of them are you know, that's the whole idea is upcycling a, a pardon the pun, but upcycling a, a former or a disused railway or canal path into a, a multi-use uh, trail. So trying to maintain the green infrastructure that kind of typically forms in these abandoned areas and redevelop them really sensitively uh, with consideration to all these aspects. I suppose it's funny too, because at conferences many times I was asked, you know, if it, well, if it's currently functioning, why not leave it alone? Would that be the best thing? And it was a very good question and made me think a good bit about it. And, and funny enough, thinking back on my fieldwork, so many times when I was I was exploring these abandoned uh, corridors, so many times I came across you know hedgerows gone, you know, and and so the, the railway subsumed into the into the farmland, kind of made me realise that if we don't have a sort of a manner of protecting these corridors and maintaining them, uh, maintaining their connectivity or maintaining having some sort of a of a human use for them, then we lose both the opportunity to develop. Agreeing, right? And we lose the opportunity to develop or to maintain these corridors, these ecological corridors. And um, particularly as as the next generations come in, you know, currently there's still a, a generation, uh, I suppose, of farmers or landowners that remember the railway possibly that was still open. But as that generation moves on, I'm not so sure, you know, the next generation, the next farmers really going to have the interests of, of the railway at heart anymore. You know, their interests are elsewhere. So, um, yeah, that was the topic. That was broadly the topic of my PhD. We could talk about way more in detail, but there's an entire book and, and four, four publications available online uh, on ResearchGate under my name, Julian Carter, if anyone wants to have a look. Great, and we'll we'll put that link in on the website. You mentioned earlier on your interest in uh, and linkages between forestry, agroforestry, and high nature value farming, or even 
farming. Could you say a little bit more and maybe talk a little bit about uh, how they tend to be separate, whereas you're looking at it from a connectivity or a networking point of view from from a nature point of view? And we'll come on later then to talk about what the policy changes are coming about. But, but first mm. of all, what do you mean by high nature value farming? Sure. My transition to high nature value farming, uh, farming and, and, and forests, I suppose, uh, just in the background of all this is uh, is, is the interest of my supervisor, uh, my PhD supervisor, Dr. James Moore. He would have he'd been researching for over a decade now at this stage, and uh, he would have been involved with um, the famous burn project down in County Clare in Ireland, in the Midwest of Ireland. But what we mean by um, high nature value farmlands and forests, it's those areas and it's it's a European concept. It's a European term for uh, areas in Europe where agriculture, I suppose, if we're talking about farmlands, agriculture is, is the major land use. So it's like the dominant land use, but it supports it supports or it's associated with either high species or habitat diversity or the presence of European uh, species of European conservation concern. So it's still sort of those farmlands that were actually very familiar, Sean, uh, in, in the northwest of Iron, for example, as a, as a typical example, or the Bocage regions of, of France would be in, or the Montados in, in Spain. These are all typical HNV farmland landscapes, you know, with a, a high density or a high proportion of semi-natural habitats that form an integral part of the farm or, or the farming systems. And then the, the concept of HNV forests has been around just as long, but not as well developed or maybe not as, as, as quickly as grasped uh, as, as, a, as a term. But again, it's, it's something, it's slightly different to farmlands where I suppose the emphasis is on the degree of naturalness. So we look at forests and they're defined on the continuum of naturalness. So, you know, something that is, is of low, high nature value could be like a plantation forest, you know, where everything is very uniform and almost sterile, depending on the, on the species. And then you can take that all the way through to, you know, our, our ancient or long established woodlands, you know, uh, old growth forests that are very high natural levels. So that's the definitions of the farmlands and forests. I suppose to, to paint a picture of it, it's 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 all in, in farmlands are all those small fields, wet, rushy pastures, grazed areas of bog or heat in the uplands and the lowlands. And typical to those areas are the dense you know, networks of hedgerows. Some of the things I would have described as part of my Greenway uh, connectivity study areas, funny enough. And within these these sort of farmland settings, then you have this sort of transition towards the HNV uh, forest, perhaps. So sometimes you get pockets of woodlands, you know, uh, wet woodlands, and then it transitions towards, you know, more so the HNV forest side of things where those smaller pockets of woodlands transition to, you know, more, you know, bigger semi-natural woodlands or in scrub together, maybe with larger areas of, of native forests or, you know, wherever these occur now. They're typically very rare in Ireland. Some of our recent research highlights that um, it's less than 1% of our land cover constitutes um, anything close to a high nature value forest. But um, I suppose in terms of the research itself, you know, why is it important? I suppose it's very important to research these areas. Um, you know, they're, they're associated with a high delivery of ecosystem services or things known as, as public goods. And I suppose what it means is that these high nature value landscapes that produce, you know, a lot more than just farm or, or forest produce like beef or fiber or, you know firewood for example you know there's things like the aesthetics of the landscape you know things that attract tourism things that bring a, a quality of life you know these small farming systems that support communities they support traditional farming family practices they provide clean water you know water retention flood alleviation uh, sediment retention nutrient loss you know it captures nutrient loss in terms of the more wet or how do you say the 
the more peatland sort of parts of, of high nature value farmland, it's more so, you know, carbon sequestration. So I suppose in a nutshell, HNV farming and, and forestry you know, just produces a lot more than just cattle or sheep or, or timber. But like, a, you know, a whole broad, it's, it's recognizing that whole broader range of, you know, societal and environmental goods that they produce. Would you comment on when you talk about high nature value, almost by implication, you're saying that farmers should be paid for maintaining the value, the high value. Um, so I, what are the challenges that are involved in that and how there's a, obviously a transformation needed in Ireland to do that? Because we don't, as you said, uh, it, there's a, only a very small proportion, certainly of forestry. Um, you might comment also on how much of farming is high nature value at the moment. But what are the challenges involved in in transforming our agricultural system into mm. it becoming a high nature value as well as a food production uh, system? Sure, I suppose the current issues, uh, at least at the moment anyway, there's, there's sort of, there is, like you mentioned, uh, there is a shift in policy in Ireland, currently in Ireland and in other EU areas as well, where I suppose we, we look at rewarding farmers or landowners for delivering yeah, the range of public goods I just mentioned there, um, that just uh, obviously it happens to be termed within areas called, you know, termed HNV farmlands and forest. But we're looking at uh, the form of um, payments for ecosystem services. So it's 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 quite a monumental, you know, monumental change from the current system, I suppose, which which has been really about rewarding production all the way since, you know, since uh, the cap. Common agricultural policy has been all about rewarding production, you know, constant production of, of food and fibre. So I suppose the current the, the current support systems, like I said, are highly biased towards intensification of farmland. And this this kind of huge repercussions for farming, particularly in the, in the northwest of Ireland or you know, this side of the Shannon, has you know, huge effects in, in the form of like externalities that do not account for the wider costs, like the degradation or the destruction of habitat. You know, this, this constant need to intensify you know, leads to soil loss, water quality degradation and so on. Now, there are attempts, don't get me wrong, to mitigate these issues and they have been through, you know, good practice and uh, various regulations and things like that. But yeah, there, there's a whole load of environmental actions that farmers are rewarded for undertaking. Um, you know, you, you might have heard of the rep schemes, for example, you know, like buffer strips along river courses and things like that to try and catch, uh, you know, nutrient uh, sedimentation and things like that. But when we look at the wider picture, you know, all over, um, all the state and environment reports year on year constantly pointing to a decrease in environmental quality. In a range of environmental quality and contrastingly our, our production and our exports continue to increase year on year so yeah there, there are shifts towards sustainable you know more sustainable production systems in agriculture and forestry but um i suppose we're beginning to recognize and support you know more of those systems and um, these systems are typically low intensity but with the higher ecosystem services delivery we can talk about you know more about that if you, if you wish um maybe in terms of the the payment systems or the, the support systems sean is it yeah, could you give an example of what might be done or how how, how you think uh, farmers, particularly in the west of Ireland, uh, which I think is the place, the, the, the most likely place that you could, uh, shall we say, is ripe for high nature value farming, but maybe you could comment on that. But what, sure. what kinds of things could be offered to farmers? Yeah, well, I suppose when I, when I mentioned payments for ecosystem services, it's, it's the idea that, you know, uh, the payments can support the farmers to deliver uh, ecosystems that are in good condition, which in turn deliver the range of public goods. So Ireland at the moment, um, it's been in the news and it was formally uh, announced, I think a couple of weeks ago, 
um, we're proceeding with a new cooperative approach. Um, it's it's not the first of its type, but in Ireland it's the first, thing, and it's it's following on from um, very successful cooperative approaches in in the Netherlands, for example. They use very similar systems, and it's a cooperative approach um, for for the payment of these ecosystem services approach. So basically, we've identified large landscape areas across Ireland, um, and by large I mean to the extent of entire counties. You know, or, or even several counties in some cases. And these areas are identified for their makeup of things, you know, could be mature to thousand sites, you know, designate Europe, European designated sites. Could be things like high water quality, um, you know, a certain amount of upland habitats, you know, specific biodiversity, etc. And the farmers, landowners basically in these areas who opt in to this new subsidy system will be paid not only for the ecosystem quality of their land, but can also avail of, you know, grants. So things called non-productive investments where, you know, if they have an identified issue, they can be paid directly to remedy it. For example, like a like a farmyard drain that flows directly into a river, which is a, a point source of pollution. Um, you know, they can avail of a grant every year to remedy all these issues or, you know, things like in the uplands, you know, to, to provide drinkers for, for animals to keep them out of sensitive watercourses, for example. And then beyond that, again, on top of that, there's another grant system where there's landscape actions. They can uh, multiple farmers or groups of farmers can get together, and this is the whole cooperative approach. They can get together and find solutions to wider environmental problems. So that could be something like a series of um, you know, specific or targeted actions along a river that has, for example, uh, erosion problems, you know, bank subsidence or things like that. And that's that's just getting established this year. So it's rolling out over the next six years. And I suppose I would hope you know, that that the successful delivery of this uh, this new corporate approach will uh, will ensure that it continues, you know, beyond the next cap review and uh, beyond this time frame, and perhaps incorporate more and more farmers. At the moment, at the moment, it's capped to twenty thousand farmers, or just beyond that. Um, and just uh, in context, Ireland would have about uh, I think one hundred and twenty thousand farmers. So we would hope that it would just it would expand, yeah, across the the, the country. You mentioned earlier on uh, the importance of mapping areas, and I know you're involved in different projects about mapping. Uh, mm. Could you say a few words about what modern mapping techniques are there and how are they being used in the context of landscape ecology? Sure. Well, I suppose the mapping, uh, if, if I want to bring it back to the context of what we're using the mapping for, we've been looking at estimates, trying to estimate how much high nature value farmland we have in Ireland and how much high nature value forest we have in Ireland. It's not that easy because I suppose, you know, it, it's based on a set of indicators. So, you, you know, it, it's down to the, the amount of semi-natural habitat you have or perhaps the presence of certain species or the different management structures that are in within that. So really what you need if you're going to look at um, the extent and trying to quantify the amount of high nature value you know, landscape or farmland or forest, you need to start to bring in multiple layers of information uh, together or overlap them. And that's what these uh, GIS systems are, are particularly good for. So, you, you know, you can bring in uh, the habitat layer, you can overlay a, a forest layer, you can overlay maybe forest management layers. Um, we would have been working with uh, aerial imagery even, you know, so sort of terrain imagery. And once you overlay them, you can find like sort of hotspots of where multiple um, indicators occur within one area. And then you can start to, you know, to, to map out the extent of possibly HNV farmland or forest, depending on your definitions. And these map outputs, I suppose, would be, very, again, like I said, very, very useful for determining the extent, determining the quantity, you know, how much do we have, 
you know, so how much how much money do we actually need to support all these areas, you know, through the different subsidies, for example, um, and where it is, you know, is it mostly one particular area of the country or is there different types? And it's very useful, I suppose, in terms of monitoring as well. So we're looking at data that we have, you know, or that we need to generate and keeping track of how much of HNB farmland is, is and uh, where is it and how much of it there is and what the quality of it is as well, because we need to know, you know, are the HNB habitats, are they in stable condition, are they declining, um, are they in a condition that delivers maximum ecosystem services or, or public goods? And a lot of that we can derive even just through you know, sort of landscape parameters like, you know, the, the area, the, the shape of them, their connectivity to other, you know, the connectivity be particularly important from a, a functional point of view, because obviously if you have a habitat in isolation, it acts like, a, it acts like an island and species can't get in or out. So it's very vulnerable to, to shocks. Whereas if, you know, again, if they're connected to each other, they're much more resilient. If one, one gets destroyed or whatever, uh, species can can flow through the, the landscape to recolonize these areas. So there's yeah, just a whole lot of work um, that you can do with these spatial data sets. Um, even taking it further, like we, we've been doing some modeling work, for example, where um, we've simulated current farmland and forest uh, schemes. So yeah, these schemes that I've been talking about in the past, like the REPS, for example, we've simulated these in a number of landscapes and uh, we've looked at their simulated effect or their, their expected effects. And we measure what the effects of being on ecosystem services, such as like, you know, food, fiber, uh, carbon storage, uh, habitat quality, uh, ha habitat connectivity, like I mentioned. And we can see what the effects of these measures are. Uh, we see what they have on their own or in combination. But what's particularly interesting there is like the interaction that occurs between, for example, farmland and forest schemes. So we, we showed, you know, what can happen if, if they work together at the landscape level. Um, and what we what we what we show through our, our research, which we'll be publishing later this year, is that a lot of these schemes for uh, agri-environmental and forest schemes, if they're implemented together in a targeted and sort of more cooperative approach across the landscape, they can have you know, huge benefits, numerous co-benefits to ecosystem services. And often, again, at a, at a minimal added cost, like fractional added cost, uh, minimal loss to landowners. So, I mean, I could go on. <laughs> my whole PhD was based on uh, was based on GIS, and uh, I suppose my whole postdoc is, is all based on uh, on these mapping systems. I'm going to, to a certain extent, bring you back to the beginning um, when you talked about landscape ecology and connectivity and how all of all, all of these different pieces of the jigsaw, including humans, are all interlinked. And really, from an e ecological point of view, they need to be linked. You know, forests and trees and nature and humans and mm. uh, a high nature value, they're all should be interacting together. And yet what we have kind of what our state has essentially set up is, if you like, an extractive forestry program uh, which is based on monoculture and uh, it, it, it basically an economic model and the success if you can call it that of our agriculture is is very similar it's a kind of a, a monocultured approach to beef and dairy production that is very economically successful and then mm. there's all the rest uh, mm. and I, I suppose I'd put it and that flies totally against the kind of concepts that you you talk about as an ecologist but mm. uh, the question I put to you is how optimistic are you uh, that mm. Ireland is going to take 
take from where we are into the future? And what are the challenges really, the big challenges that we as a, as a, a I suppose, as a community, the community in Ireland, you know, the nation that we face? How, how do you see that and are you optimistic? Well, I'd like to think of this, you know, the, the whole new cooperative project, uh, the whole new farming schemes and forest schemes I've just mentioned. Uh, I'd like to think that the whole cooperation project approach is uh, is very promising. There's a lot of opportunity there to do good. It's going to make real changes because, you know, I mean, we're looking at things that are results based as opposed to prescriptive. So we'd be basically rewarding those positive changes. We'd be changing the, the, the mindset of those, I suppose, farmers and uh, maybe some landowners and maybe that includes uh, elements of forestry as well would be changing the whole mindset to, um, you know, what is it that I can do to increase ecosystem quality of the habitat or, you know, the field or the, the, the forest area, the woodland that is within this payment system or this payment structure. I'd like to see that model become successful. Or I'd like to hope that it will become successful, that, you know, more and more landowners buy into this type of sort of, you know, integrated landscape management, you know, because it makes sense. And I suppose with that, we should be able to see real results. You know, if we think about the next six, seven years, the next cap cycle, we should be able to see, you know, stable trends, trends stabilizing, or at least maybe even improving uh, in terms of uh, biodiversity, um, or at least within those regions and within the cooperation project regions. And again, the same for water quality as well, which is huge, hugely uh, impacted by farming practices, all the way through to, you know, the overall aesthetics of our landscapes, you know, just the, the preservation of, of our typical classic west of Ireland landscapes and the payment for ecosystem services approach should really incentivize or you know re-incentivize those smaller uh, more extensive firms maybe maybe even encourage young people or maybe just general farming uptake we should see you know a lot less farms going to scrub or being abandoned uh, also maybe even the opposite as well less attempts at intensification or you know less attempts at actions that just don't make sense for these regions um, and and you know, this is likely to extend beyond the farming, I suppose, into, like I mentioned, other land uses like forestry. You know, if this, this proves a successful approach, um, and, you know, linking back to the work that I'm doing in the, as a postdoc, we should see a move to rewarding landowners for, you know, the nature value of their forests, of their high nature value forests um, and the various public goods that, that those deliver to. Um, so, uh, funny enough, just a couple of weeks ago, I was just recently, uh, I was actually talking to a friend from uh, from Ecuador and uh, she, she couldn't believe, you know, the potential that th these sort of approaches have because uh, it was just, it was very topical at the time. It's just been released by the minister and um, she couldn't believe how far, you know, we'd come actually to develop this type of a system, you know, this sort of valuation system. And uh, she put this vision across, she was saying, you know, how a system like this could be for you know, the future to, to reward ecosystem services delivery for the Amazon rainforest and uh, and the native people. So, uh, you know, who knows? The hell of a vision, you know? <laughs> that was Julian Carlier speaking with Sean O'Connor about his research into high nature value farming and his work on the ecology of greenways. If you enjoyed this podcast, please spread the word on social media about our series Bridging the Gaps and keep an eye out for our next instalment at the end of July. Gurmila Mahagut Julian for your participation and also to Leisha Kelly as usual for her fine music on the harp. Mm -hmm.